We are continuing, picking up in John chapter 3 where Jesus has been speaking to Nicodemus and, and this morning we are coming to the end of this whole conversation. This conversation which has been directed towards a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, a man who believes in his eternal security because he is ethnically Jewish and a follower of the traditions of the elders. And Jesus, as he has been conversing with Nicodemus, has challenged him on the very foundations of Nicodemus' beliefs. It is something, a conversation, that has exposed Nicodemus's unbelief, but it is one which eventually, as we come to the end of John's Gospel, we will see converts Nicodemus. Challenging, yet necessary. We come to the end of this conversation this morning, verses 19 to 21. So that is what I want to read together this morning. Jesus says, verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to You this morning asking for You to speak to our hearts. You are the God who can search into the depths of our being deeper than even we can see. And so, Father, as we listen, as it were, as we eavesdrop on Jesus and Nicodemus, and we see Jesus speaking about the affections of a man. What he loves. Do not, O oh God, allow us to hear this Word and not be searched and exposed with what we love. Father, let us see the radiance of Your glory this morning. Morning. 
Let us be granted with repentance from whatever sin so entangles us that we might be renewed in our minds and in our hearts to be a people who above all seek to do good works, not for our own glory, but so that Your name might be praised. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a story, a true story, about a pastor and a certain businessman who attended his church. The businessman had begun to experience conviction over sin and conviction over certain matters of religion. He had begun to experience deep impressions about the truthfulness of all of these things he had heard preached from the pastor. He and the pastor met and had several conversations about this experience, about these impressions. But none of these conversations seemed to be making any headway. None of these conversations were leading to a conclusion where the businessman was setting his hopes on Christ. The businessman had become convinced that he would never obtain salvation. That he would never make any progress in his spiritual life unless he quit work altogether and devoted all of his time to this pursuit. The pastor reasoned with him. He argued with him. He tried to convince him that this was simply not the case. That Scripture commands us to work. Not to neglect it. That there was no problem, that there was no conflict between work and a spiritual life. That, in fact, it was a part of the duty of a Christian to work. And that, if he would not work, he shouldn't eat. But the businessman was not convinced. He said that his mind was constantly drawn away from spiritual things by his daily work. And that he was sure that if the only thing in the world he had to do was to seek God, if the only thing he had to do was was to read, and to pray, and to devote all of his time to, to these spiritual pursuits, then he would find salvation, and then he would make progress in his spiritual life. The preacher, the pastor, told him, responded, he would be more likely to find a delusion and call it salvation. But the businessman insisted on his own way. 
So he quit his work. And he went away to live in a house, away from everything. At the end of his first week living there, he examined his heart. He examined his heart to see if there was any present experience that indicated some spiritual progress. And he found, as he looked in his heart, that he had not made any progress. So he resolved to be even more diligent in studying the Bible. He resolved to pray with even more fervency, with more energy. He resolved to call his heart to account daily. He would make sure that he attended every meeting of the church, and then after he attended those meetings, he would go back to his house in solitude and continue reading and praying with fervency. He did this for almost a month. But at the end of the month, he found that whatever convictions he previously had, and whatever religious sentiments he was seeking to increase, were almost entirely gone. So having discovered that all the time in the world was not making him a spiritual man, he decided to return to work. He came to the pastor and he said this, I found that my own heart was the worst companion I could have. If I cannot come to repentance in the workshop, I am sure I never can alone. If I had stayed there much longer, I should have cared nothing about religion. When he returned to work, the pastor said that his seriousness for salvation shortly followed. And about four weeks later, he professed a hope in Christ. He eventually united with the church, And he remained there as a strong and growing Christian many years later. This story illustrates well that any excuse can be given for lacking zeal in spiritual things. Any excuse. Time is probably one of the more common of them. I just don't have time. I've been working all day. I've been running errands all day. And it seems to be the case week after week after week. I just don't have time to devote myself to the pursuit of spiritual things. I don't have time to make Christ the centerpiece of all of my life. It just seems that me, perhaps unlike other people, 
just don't have time. I've been taking care of the kids. They've been driving me crazy. And afterwards, I just want to sit down, relax. Which leads to another common common reason given. Weariness. I'm tired. It's been a long day at work. I didn't get much sleep last night. I just don't have the energy I need every day to pursue Christ, to devote myself to following Him. I'm tired. It makes me think. I was reminded this Past week, about William Tyndale. Leah's reading his biography currently, so you can ask her all about it when she finishes. William Tyndale was a man who was persecuted for translating the Bible from Greek into English so that the common man could read it. He spent over 400 days in prison. Not a prison like we're used to, where you get three square meals every day and you have air condition and TV. A dungeon that's cold and he has no clothes, at least not enough to keep him warm. Feet freezing, almost suffering from frostbite. And you know what he did while he was there? You can imagine the weariness he probably felt He requested that a man bring him a dictionary and a Greek New Testament so that he could continue translating. The man was tired, and yet he found a way to pursue Christ. I think, I think all of our weariness never measures up. Time, weariness, These are reasons that we can give for not pursuing salvation, not following Christ. No, brothers and sisters, all of these different kinds of reasons may seem valid to us, but they are not sufficient explanations for a lack of spiritual vitality. They do not adequately explain why so many in the church today have a spiritual depth no deeper than a grain of sand and are perfectly content with remaining that way. There are many who have been Christians for decades, all across, all across the Western Hemisphere. Many who have been Christians for decades and whose knowledge and experience of the Christian life, whose repentance is no better and no deeper than when they first professed a hope in Christ. There's no depth. Why? Why? 
Why can this happen? That's what I want to ask this morning. Why? How? How can this be? For an unbeliever, why is it the case that you can go to a drunk? You can go to a man who has practically destroyed every single relationship he's ever had. Who reeks of alcohol because he's so dependent upon it. He's destroyed everything. He has no place to live. You can see within his eyes there is no life. Why is it that you can go to a man like that and say to him, God has given you a way to be free. To have life. Not to be in bondage with the very thing that is destroying you and you know it. Why can you go to a man like that and say the Son of God can make All things new. He's willing. He's able. He desires to do just that. And yet, that man can prefer the bottle still. Why is that? For a professing believer, why is it the case that you can sing I once was lost in darkest night. I was lost. Yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Hallelujah! All I have is Christ. Hallelujah! Jesus is my life. How do we sing that? How do we sing those words? Why is it that you can sing, He's my life? He's everything. Every aspect. The air I breathe is Christ. And yet, the simplest disciplines of Christian discipleship. Simplest. Most basic. The basics of following Christ in a joy-filled, cross-bearing life. The basics reading, listening to the Word of God. Praying with the people of God. Calling out to God with the people of God. And for the people of God. Assembling as the gathered body of Christ to sing to one another. To hear the Word. To have your heart penetrated Changed by the power of the gospel. Assembling as the gathered 
body of Christ, fellowshipping with other believers, not just to have dinner, not just to watch a game, but fellowshipping around the Word of God. Why is it that we can sing those truths? Christ is my life. And yet, the simplest, the simplest disciplines of Christian discipleship are missing. Christ is almost completely absent from our life. We ought, we ought to sing, Jesus is a couple of hours of my life. That would be more accurate. Why is this the case? Well, I'm going to cut right to the point and answer that with Jesus' words here. Nicodemus. Men love darkness rather than light. That's the reason. Men love darkness rather than the light. The reason for irreligion, nominal Christianity, is not because of a lack of time or weariness. The reason is because our hearts love something more than Christ. The pastor who was ministering to that confused businessman, upon later reflection, said that many think they lack time for religion, while in fact they only lack heart. That is the assessment Jesus gives also. Here in John 3, as Jesus continues to speak to Nicodemus, He gives the reason why those who are not continually believing in Christ. That's key there. Continually believing. There is a difference in the Gospel of John that we've already seen between true belief and false belief. One does not last when the world comes calling. One doesn't last when the cost of following Christ means you have to crucify something in your life. The other is literally a continued belief. Day by day, hour by hour, I am entrusting myself to the will of God. Jesus here is giving the reason why those who are not continually believing in Christ and who are not continually following Him stand condemned before God already. He gives, as it were, here, the evidence 
of the condemnation. The divine verdict has been handed down, and now in verses 19 and following, he is giving the opinion of the court. So I'm sure you're familiar with the Supreme Court. They come down with a decision, they come down with a verdict, and then they publish their opinion. And that opinion gives all of the reasons why they concluded the way they did. This is what Jesus is giving here. There is a condemnation that already rests upon those who are not continually, daily, trusting in Christ and following Him. And now we can read the divine and authoritative opinion on the matter. Jesus says in verse 19, and this is the judgment. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus. Jesus is the light who has come. He says in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Which means, He is, above all, the most pure, the most holy. To be in His presence is to be in the presence of absolute perfection where there are no stains of sin. It speaks of moral purity. It speaks of divine righteousness. And it also speaks of Jesus being the radiance of the glory of God. He, as the light of the world, is divine revelation in the world. When you see Jesus, when Nicodemus is speaking to Jesus, when we hear Jesus, we are hearing the revelation of the Word of God. This is God's will. These are God's commandments. This is how God calls us to live when we see Jesus. So this light, Jesus, has come into the world. But men loved the darkness. They loved the darkness rather than the light. There are two, and only two, objects of love here. There's no in-between. The light, Jesus, and everything that is associated with Him. That's one object of love, and the darkness is the other. To love the light is to love Christ as your sovereign King. It is to have Him as your life, which means that you find His life and His commandments and His Word to be the very source of all your joy. Say that again. That means that you find His life 
That's a cross-centered life. You find His life and His commandments and His Word to be the very source of all your joy. His commandments and His Word. Obedience, friends, obedience is not a bad word. It's not legalistic. Christian obedience is what the Bible means when it describes believers as those who follow Christ. To love the light is to love not just parts of the Word of God, not just the sections that affirm your traditions, whatever they may be, Not just the aspects of Jesus which your given culture finds tolerable and polite. But to love all of it, and most especially those places that call you to account. Those places which make you the least comfortable in your flesh and thereby give you the power to crucify the flesh. So there is this category of loving the light. But Jesus says, men loved the darkness rather than the light. They love. They love it with their hearts, with all their energy, with all their passions. They love the darkness. That's what tastes good. That's what's comfortable. That's what's pleasing to them. The darkness more than the light. That's how you can phrase it both ways. They love the darkness rather than the light. But indeed, more than the light. The darkness is everything in the world, everything in the world that is set up to compete with Christ. And the default position, Jesus says, of a man or a woman is to love anything. Anything more than Christ. This is the world of idolatry. That's what idolatry is. Now an idol may not be anything that is inherently sinful. Ancient idols, for example, were nothing more than gold or silver or wood carved into ridiculous images. But the gold's not going to do anything. It's not a god. The silver's not going to do anything. There's nothing inherently sinful about it. What makes an idol truly sinful is when it competes for your devotion to Christ and God. When you love it more than you love Christ. And you devote yourself and you follow it rather than Christ. Now that could be something 
as blatantly sinful as staring at a computer screen and gazing at pornography. Or, it could be something as innocent as sports, or work, or school. Even your family can become an idol that competes for Christ. Any of these things can be an idol that prevents you from following Christ. So I'm going to ask you a question. And how you answer the question. Not what you answer, because anyone can answer rightly. But how you answer in your heart may diagnose where your idols are. When you hear this question, you might think it's a strange question. But I want you to consider it. Okay? You ready? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Him? Do you love, love, love Him with all your heart? Do you love Him? Now, I'm not, I'm not asking that question. This is not just a, this is not a me question to you. This is not Pastor Dallas trying to find out what you love. I'm asking this question in the manner that Jesus asked this question to Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Referring to the fish they had just ate. Food. Simon Peter, do you love me more than this food? Simon Peter, do you love me? Simon Peter, do you love me? Simon answered in the positive three times. And after that third answer, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John tells us, this Jesus said to show by what kind of death He was to glorify God. Peter, friends, A disciple who said, I love you. I love you, Lord. Peter would be eventually crucified upside down. And Jesus, knowing this, said to Peter, Follow me. Follow me. Brothers and sisters, when you answer that question, 
When you answer that question, do you understand that the love Jesus speaks of is not merely some kind of sentimental love? It's not just some emotion. It is a love which summons you to action. It is a love that Jesus is calling upon you to act on. It is a love that so acts as to exalt Christ and to make much of Him even in your death. Even when you are weary. Even when you are tired and you are emotionally saturated with grief. Whatever the troubles may be, the love that Jesus calls us to is a love that calls us to die. Does your life demonstrate this kind of love? Does it demonstrate it? Or would you have to say, I do not. I do not love you more than these. Whatever these may be. Work, family, time. I do not love you more than these. Does your life demonstrate that kind of love? We must move on to another important thing Jesus says in His divine verdict, which is the reason why men love darkness more than the light. The reason He gives is at the end of verse 19. Because their works were evil. Why do they love darkness? Why do men love darkness? Reason, their works are evil. Then His statement is explained further in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. If you're not loving Christ more than these, there is no small amount of love. It's love or hate. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Now let me explain this real quick. The reason men do not follow Jesus, the reason they do not love Him, do not devote themselves to Him, is fundamentally, fundamentally moral. It is not, as we saw earlier, because of a lack of time. It is not because of weariness. It is not because of insufficient evidence. It is not because some pastor preached on hell. And it is not because some church member at another church offended me. That is not the reason why men do not follow Jesus. These all might be reasons given. But Jesus says, fundamentally, that the root of the matter is moral. Moral. 
A man or a woman has sin in their life. Evil deeds. Maybe it's something that can be concealed, like pride. Maybe it's hatred. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's bitterness towards another. Whatever it may be, Jesus says that is why they do not come to the light. Coming to Christ and living for Him and following Him day by day means that my heart and my sin must be confronted by Him. It must be confronted by the soul-searching power of the Word of God, and it must be brought to light by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. That is the basics of coming to Christ. Is that my sin is no longer hidden. It's coming out. And it's being placed on a cross to die. Never to rise again. It means that I must change. I must change. Me? I know plenty of people who need to change. But me? That's right. Me. I have to change. And fundamentally, Jesus says, men would rather have their sin than Him. There is so much more I would like to say on this point. But we need to move on for the sake of time. As we come to verse 21, we find Jesus giving a contrast to those mentioned in verses 19 and 20. The contrast is between those who do wicked things and those who do what is true. To phrase it in another way, those who live in habitual, unrepentant sin, harboring it, holding on to it, grasping it, and those who live in faithfulness. That's what it means to do what is true. It means... To do what is faithful to God. To live in truth. Those who do what is faithful to God are marked by coming to the light. This, this is their fundamental characteristic. They come to the light. They come to Christ. They follow Him. They love Him. That is what is pleasing to God. And they make that their everyday pursuit. Follow Him wherever they may go. Wherever God may bring them. In John 6.28, some of the Jews asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him who sent me. You continue to believe. You entrust your entire life to me. You follow me. You obey me. You read my commandments. You hear my commandments. You say, that is good. There's where life is. My rules, my standards, my traditions, no life. No life is there. His commands, life. You believe Him. To do what is true and what is faithful 
is to continually entrust yourself in the care and the path of Jesus. But here, at the end of verse 21, at the end is really where we see the contrast come out. The major difference between those who come to the light and those who love the darkness is found in the different purposes that shape their lives. What is the purpose for which I live? Verse 20, those who love the darkness do not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This is, this is a purpose statement. Literally, it reads, so that their works might not be exposed. So that. This person's works, who loves the darkness, are all for himself. They are for his own sinful pleasures. They are self-seeking. They are self-fulfilling. They are gratifying to the flesh and to the flesh alone. No one else benefits from these works. They are oriented around a man's personal self-image. Friends, even outwardly good works can be this. We've already seen in the New Testament, the Pharisees were just like this. They gave their money. They put the coins in the, in the bowl so everyone could hear. They prayed long prayers that went on and on and on so that everyone could see these men are righteous. And their egos just went up and up and up. These are the kind of works that are evil. The one who comes to the light has a different purpose which drive his, drives his actions. He comes to the light, Jesus says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Or that they have been carried out in the power of God. They have been carried out manifestly. It is seen. This happened through God. What does that mean? Let me give an example. Consider forgiveness. Consider forgiveness. Forgiving someone who has wronged you is not unique to Christianity. I mean, it's not as though an atheist or some other religiously influenced person does not know how to forgive. This is part of life. People know how to forgive. There's nothing unique about it in Christianity. But there is a difference between forgiveness done in the power of the flesh and forgiveness done in the power of the Spirit. Night and day difference. Anyone can forgive in the power of the flesh. That happens on a daily basis. This, this is the kind of forgiveness it is really mostly verbal. One person apologizes, the other person says, apology accepted. That's about it. But very often, this kind of fleshly forgiveness still harbors bitterness. It still looks for opportunities to bring to light the sin of the one who sinned against you. It looks for opportunities 
to gossip about the person who sinned against you, even though you gave a verbal proclamation, they're forgiven. That is fleshly forgiveness. There's no actual reconciliation. Indeed, very often it's the case that someone will express forgiveness and then have nothing to do with the person that wronged them. Again, forgiveness and the power of the flesh. This kind of forgiveness is nothing more than one party saying to the other, I just don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm done. Unbelievers can do this. There's nothing Christian about it. But forgiveness carried out in the power of the Spirit is radically different. It takes seriously. Maybe as its foundation stone, Jesus' injunction, love your enemies. It follows Christ in that. Its aim is to replicate the Gospel in life, no matter how hard it may be. Its aim is to draw attention not to one's own hurt, However legitimate it may seem, its aim is not to draw attention to the fact that you have been sinned against, but to draw attention to the God whom we all have sinned against in our own rebellion. And yet, the God who secured our eternal forgiveness at the cost of the blood of His Son. That's forgiveness. Christian forgiveness is motivated by and carried out in a manner that adorns the Gospel. It begins with the Gospel as the foundation. It begins with the recognition, I am a sinner. I am a rebel. I have sinned against others. I have sinned against chiefly God. Over and over and over. I deserve death. I deserve to be judged. And yet, in the grace and the mercy of God, His blood was shed for me. Who am I not to forgive another? What kind of hypocrisy would that be? Our friends... Christian forgiveness begins with the gospel as the foundation and it allows the gospel to drive its every action. Christian forgiveness, friends, is often, often looks like the person who's been sinned against going towards the sinner to bring about reconciliation. Not the other way around. Not the one who has sinned against you coming to you. Christian forgiveness requires a sacrifice. Your own pride, your own hurt. Friends, these these kinds of works carried out in the power of God. A forgiveness that cuts off all of our own pride. These kinds of works can only be done by those who come to the light. This kind of forgiveness 
is only carried out by those who have the Spirit of God. It can only be carried out by those who know and have experienced the Gospel. If that's not there, there's no motivation for this. We just, we just go on forgiving like everyone else does. These kind of works carried out in the power of God can only come to those who have the Spirit and who know the saving power of the Gospel. Friends, is that you? Does the Gospel color every aspect of your life? Can you sing, as we sang earlier, Jesus is my life. He's my life when I'm sinned against. He's my life with my schedule. He's my life with my weariness. Jesus is my strength. If I am weary, if I am sad, if I am downtrodden, I have Christ. Is that you? Is that you? Do you know the power of the Gospel? If that is you, then dear friends, our call is very simple. We are to be a people, individually, corporately, a people whose every part of our lives is to make much of Christ. So you just have to think, what is in my life? What does my life look like now? What is hindering this zeal? This kind of life that we see in the Apostle Paul, where I will indeed be willing to be stoned, to be without food, if I can make much of Christ, because He's my life. He's my righteousness. Is that you? If that is you, friends, then this is what our life looks like. It is no longer my life, but Him who lives through me. That is what we are to be about. Would you pray with me? Father, I above all am chief of sinners. I know that nothing within me that is in me is good. And that I need a cleansing work of the Spirit and the Word of God, which is a light of life and the radiance of the glory of Christ to be greater than my own life. Father, we are sinners, all of us. And You alone, You alone have the power, the capability to take our hearts and to create within them something brand new that hungers for Christ and for Your Word. So this is what we pray, that we, we would not be a man or a woman marked as those who love darkness, but as those who love the light. Give us this mind and give us this heart, we pray in Jesus' name.